Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church Mission Viejo Campus. Whether you're listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. Big, scary book of Leviticus. Now, how many of you grew up in church? Okay, how many of you didn't? All right, I like you guys better. Um, no, there, there are pluses and minuses to growing up in church. Uh, and, and for some of us, like, it was a bad thing growing up in church. We rebelled, now we're back. For others of us, um, it's like, man, I wish I would have known all of this stuff sooner. It just totally depends on where you're coming from. But when we, we get into big, thick theological conversations, I want to be particularly sensitive to those of you who weren't raised in this stuff. And so if ever I'm throwing words around and you're like, I have no idea what that means, or you're going way too fast, would you please interrupt me and stop me and make me explain things? Because the last thing we want to do is have a book that gets a rap for being really confusing and overwhelming. We don't want to add to that. Uh, We actually want to diminish it. Because what we believe is that anybody can pick up the Bible and benefit, but you could spend your whole life studying it and never come to the bottom. And both things are true. And so very often we begin in obscure Old Testament books just to make the point it's all one story and it all matters and it's all relevant. What we're going to do this morning... We are wrapping up a series we've been calling Why Jesus Hates Religion, which, as you know, has been um, a bit of a surprising journey because we, everyone thinks that Jesus started a religion, so why in the world would he be antagonistic towards religion? And by religion, we mean rules, regulations, and rituals that somehow earnest favor with God, goddesses, whoever's out there or up there, any of that stuff that we bring to the table, Jesus came to undermine. He didn't start a religion. He came to undermine what made religion necessary to begin with. That there was nothing you and I could do to earn our way to God's approval. God himself decided to take it upon himself to come and draw near to us. If you remember way back in September, the idea is the gospel, the good news, the message of Jesus is that God took on flesh. And while we were powerless, while we were sinners, while we were weak, while we didn't do any religious stuff, while all of that was true, he demonstrated love for us and that Christ died for us. That's the announcement of the Bible. The religious impulse is the impulse we have to earn or strive or prove or work our way into God's acceptance. And so Jesus comes and he stands against all of those who would make us jump through hoops to get to God. Jesus simply says, it's not like there's one right religion and all the other religions are wrong. It's just that religion itself is not the way to get peace with God. God came to do away with what made religion necessary to begin with. And so we've been exploring all the different facets of what that means. If you remember, we talked about how the religious impulse causes us just to polish the outside of ourselves and ignore the inside, whereas Christ comes focusing on the inside, knowing the outside will follow. We talked about the idea that the biggest warning Jesus gave his followers was hypocrisy. The duality that exists between how I look and how I am. And Jesus comes to eradicate that. By loving us and accepting us as we are, we don't have to pretend anymore. We can come out of hiding and actually admit, yep, we're screw-ups, we're broken, we're fallen, and we're still loved and And God's grace has shown us and all of those sorts of things. If you remember, the religious impulse often focuses our attention on minor issues, whereas the gospel impulse is the impulse to just pay attention to the things that most matter. 
There is a kind of religion that Jesus does approve of, right? In James, it says, true religion that our God finds pure and faultless is caring for widows, orphans. This should be review, correct? So for some of you, is there, are the lights on anywhere out there? Um, and so we've been exploring this great conversation, but we're going to end it today by talking about rituals. Those acts that are commanded in the Bible for us to perform, how do we keep those things from being just empty, mechanical uh, um, recitations of things that you know we think somehow we're buying God off? In actuality, God has this bigger deal uh, he's about that I'm excited to kind of show you, uh, uh, show you about to it. Leviticus chapter 1. All right. That, that was, I was tracking with myself there until that last about five seconds, and then I didn't even know what I was saying. All right, so Leviticus chapter 1. Now, the first five chapters of Leviticus introduce us to five kinds of offerings. The burnt offering, the fellowship offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. We are going to read little tidbits of the first five chapters to establish the following point. They were commanded by God, and they were very, very specific. Are you ready? Leviticus chapter 1. Let me introduce you to the burnt offering. Church, burnt offering, burnt offering, church. Verse 3. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, the offerer, he in this case, is to offer a male without defect. He must present it at the entrance of the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. He is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. It will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. And then notice the rest of the instructions, right? Very, very specific. Go to jump. Verse, uh, go to verse 10. If the offering is a burnt offering from the flock. So if you bring one from the herd, it's got to be like this. If you bring one from the flock, from either sheep or goats, he is to offer a male without defect. And then more instructions are given. Verse 14. If the offering... Uh, to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds. He's to offer, right, a pigeon or a dove. So if it's from a herd or a flock or from birds, here are all the instructions. That, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, is the burnt offering. Go to the grain offering, if you would. Chapter 2, verse 1. When someone brings a grain offering to the Lord, his offering is to be a fine flour. He is to pour oil on it, put incense on it, and take it to Aaron's sons, the priests. The priest shall take a handful of the fine flour and oil together with the incense and burn this as a memorial portion on the altar. All right, so you literally take some grain, add oil, and then set it on fire. Uh, And this was a pleasing aroma to God. That is the grain offering. Go to chapter 3. Now, if you're wondering why in the world this is relevant, you are not alone. Chapter (laughs) 3, verse 1. This is the fellowship offering. Now, there's huge... I mean... I'm skipping over like why you would do these and how they're different. And I just want you to get just a small feel for how overwhelmingly specific and complicated this whole thing was. All right. And if you're like, yeah, I got that point in chapter one. Yes. Well, here's chapter three. If someone's offering a fellowship offering and he offers an animal from the herd, whether male or female, he is to present it before the Lord. Um, he is to present before the Lord an animal without defect. He's to lay his hand on the head and slaughter it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And then there's all this instruction about what you do with the blood and you sprinkle it and you do all this stuff. That's the fellowship offering. Go to chapter four. Here's the sin offering. Okay, if the, verse three. 
These are offerings for people who sin unintentionally. So you didn't mean it. You didn't even know it was sin. You did it and you find out afterwards. Chapter 4, verse 3. If an, if an anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, he must bring to the Lord a young bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he's committed. Jump down to verse 13. If the whole Israelite community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though the community is unaware of the matter, they are guilty and they're to make a sin offering. Jump down to verse 22. If a leader sins unintentionally, or verse 27, if a member of the community sins unintentionally, and hear all the instructions, right? Are you feeling a little bit lost and overwhelmed? Yes. You have all of these offerings. All of them are commanded by God. Go to chapter 5. Just We're going to meet uh, the guilt offering. And then this will be the last one, and you can breathe a deep sigh of relief. Chapter 5, verse 14. The Lord said to Moses, When a person commits a violation and sins unintentionally in regard to any of the Lord's holy things, the things in the temple, he is to bring to the Lord as a penalty a ram from the flock, one without defect and of the proper value in silver. Now, <laughs> grain offerings, burnt offerings, fellowship offerings, sin offerings, and guilt offerings. Some of these were meant to be offered daily. Some of these were meant to be offered monthly. Some of these were yearly offerings. But can you see, very early in the story of God, God commands His people to offer an incredible array of offerings to Him. Have we made that point? Right, Even if you don't understand what they all were for, I want you to understand that he commanded they be made. And there was this incredibly intricate and specific and kind of overwhelming system in place so that the people of God can make these offerings. All right, That's point number one. Point number two, though, is in Psalm 50. Point number two is that God has really interesting things to say about the nature of these offerings. Go to Psalm chapter 50, right in the middle of your Bible. This is God using sarcasm. So if anyone tells you you can't be sarcastic, point them to Psalm 50 where God does it. It's, it's really kind of funny. Um, verse 7, Psalm chapter 50. You guys okay? The intro barrage of Leviticus, you've survived, and relevance is about 15 minutes and approaching, approaching fast. Verse 7 of Psalm 50. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices or for your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. But then listen to what he says. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. So God commands all of these animals be sacrificed, and then he looks at the community and says, and by the way, I don't need them. All right? Verse 11, I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. Here's the sarcasm. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that's in it. In other words, God isn't up there saying, you know, if I just had some more blood and if somebody would fire up some more grain, I'd be happy. Okay, there's this interesting juxtaposition in the Old Testament of all these commands and rituals and sacrifices are commanded by God, but at the same time, there are these instances in the Old Testament where God says, well, it's not like I need them. Go to the book of Isaiah. It raises interesting questions about who exactly these things are for. Go to Isaiah chapter 1. Flip over to the right. 
Isaiah chapter 1. We'll start in verse 11. This is just so funny. Can you imagine hearing this? Verse 11. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Which raises the obvious question, well, why do we have to do it then? Right? First five chapters of Leviticus. All right, here's how you do a burnt offering, and here's how you do a grain offering, and here's how you do a fellowship offering, and here's how you do a sin offering, and here's how you do a guilt offering. And then at the same time, he's going, hey, just so we're clear, I don't need your animals. And the, all your sacrifices, what are they to me? Right? I got plenty. Go to, if you would, to the book of Micah. If you don't know where that is, okay, go to Jonah and turn right. <laughs> We got Ezekiel, we got Daniel, we got Amos. There we go, Micah. Go to Micah chapter 6. So there are these instances in the Old Testament where God kind of comments on this whole sacrificial system that he inaugurated. And he just kind of says, well, I don't need it. Micah chapter 6, verse 6. This is the writer speaking. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Now, in Hebrew, it's a rhetorical question, and the expected answer is no. Shall I offer my firstborn son for my sin, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then the prophet speaks, he's shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. Isn't it interesting? So the writer's sitting there saying, listen, how how do I get, how do I deal with my transgression? Do I offer 10,000 gallons of oil? Should I sacrifice my firstborn son? Like, are these things buying God off? And the answer is no. So, point number one, God commands all of these sacrifices and offerings to be made. Point number two, and then says, they're not for him. Which raises the interesting question, who are they for? Go to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. We're talking about what separates empty ritual from godly, good, and holy ritual in God's sight. Go to the book of Hebrews, and we're going to go to chapter 10. We'll start in verse 1. You guys still hanging with me? Fascinating stuff. If you're wondering, how in the world does this help me get married? (laughs) Don't worry. Don't worry. It's coming. Hebrews chapter 10. Now, put your thinking caps on, because this, this is mind-blowing to me. Okay, when the author of Hebrews uses the word law, he or... She, whoever the author of Hebrews was, we don't, we're not quite sure. That person, when that person uses the word law, they're meaning not just the 613 commandments of the Old Testament law, but they mean the whole sacrificial system and its apparatus. They mean all of those sacrifices and offerings. Okay, Now, with that in mind, chapter 10, verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. 
not the realities themselves. Is the trailer of a movie the same thing as the movie? No. Kinda, but... Okay, let's be precise. Yes, kind of. But not really. Right? If you've seen... Now, in some of the really bad movies, if you've seen the trailer, you've seen the whole movie, right? You've just seen the best parts. Um, but most of the time, a trailer doesn't represent the whole thing. Or is the appetizer the same thing as the meal? No, it's just kind of a precursor, right? I'm not, I'm not even going to let you answer questions anymore because I don't trust that you'll get them right. Um, just teasing. Um, there's this... What, what, what the author of Hebrews is saying is all of that Old Testament apparatus was a shadow of a reality that was coming. Okay, so it was pointing to something bigger than itself. Second part of verse 1. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. In other words, all of the people offering the sacrifices weren't made perfect by the sacrifices. Why? If they could have been, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. In other words, listen, the writer's reflecting on the whole sacrificial system and saying, was it effective? Not really. Because if the goal of the sacrificial system was to get rid of sin, guess what? It didn't do it because every year you had to offer new sacrifices. Week after week, festival after festival, year after year. If they could have made you perfect, they would have, and you, you could have stopped offering them. As it was, all they did was circle and cycle endlessly. Are you with me so far? Now, here's, here's where it gets a little mind-blowing. Go to verse 3. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Okay, so let me get this straight. Leviticus. All right, everybody. Burnt offerings, fellowship offerings, grain offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, and you are commanded to do these. Cool. All right, sweet. I, I know where I stand with God. Hallelujah. But this, by the way, was a massive improvement over the other ancient Near Eastern religious systems of the day. The idea that you could know where you stood with God. But then God, as we're going along in the story, keeps saying, hey, by the way, just so we're clear, all the animals you're sacrificing to me, I don't need them. I've got plenty. All the food, if I were hungry, I wouldn't hit you up, right? I've got, the whole earth is mine, just so we're clear. And, and some of the writers would go, well, what can we bring before you then? I mean, should we, buy, should we try to buy you off with thousands of gallons of oil and, and thousands of rams and even my own firstborn? And then the author of Hebrews has the audacity to look back at the whole thing and say that was a shadow of the reality that was found in Jesus. And the sacrifices themselves didn't even remove sin. If they did, they wouldn't have to be offered again and again and again and again. Instead, what were they? An annual 
reminder of sin. Point one, sacrifices are commanded. Point two, God says, they're not for me. Which raises point three, who are they for? Us, as it turns out. That same writer in Hebrews talks about the sprinkling of our consciences. Now, for those of you very theologically minded people, the sacrifice of Jesus was different than all the other sacrifices we're talking about. The sacrifices of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus did something in God. His justice was satisfied. His wrath, his anger poured out on Christ. So there was, there, were, there was something in the sacrifice of Jesus that wasn't true of any other of the other sacrifices. So keep that in your mind. But all these other sacrifices, who were they for? They turned out to be for us. Now, think about why that would be. Go, if you would, to the book of Exodus. Way back, we're starting over. Exodus chapter 13. Okay, are you, are you with me on this? Okay, now, if you have questions, great. I do too. The train of thought is the following. These things were commanded. God said he didn't need them, which raises the obvious question, why did he command them? I want to suggest that the word remember is a central word in the biblical story. Because as it turns out, we are a people who forget what we're supposed to remember, and we remember what we're supposed to forget. And these rituals that God commands, because in the New Testament, there are rituals commanded to us. You know that? Baptism, communion, the two big ones. And then we could argue about, you know, is church one of those or whatever? I mean, think about how people approach these things. So I've had people, I'm a pastor. Don't hold that against me. I've had people come to me and like confess that they missed church. And they give some sort of kind of weird explanation, you know, and they they feel like they got to tell me why they missed it. And I just want to say, it's a big deal. I mean, what we do here, in my mind, is a big deal. But do you think somehow God is massively displeased with you because you, you missed church one Sunday? I mean, really? He's just waiting. I mean, it's almost like if God were writing today, he'd say, the multitude of your church services. What are they to me? In other words, I got all the church I need going on right around me in heaven, right? I got angels bowing down. I got the whole, all creation someday is going to bow down to me, just so we're clear. It's not like I'm lonely and needing worship. So who's worship for? Now he's pleased with it. He delights in it. Of course he does. In the same way a parent would look at a child and delight in their obedience, but the obedience doesn't mean the parent loves the child as a result. See, these rituals weren't for God to be pleased with us. They were to celebrate the fact He already was. Exodus chapter 13 is the recounting of something called Passover. Now, if you know your Old Testament, the most central event... Uh, in Old Testament history was something called the Exodus. It was God's delivering through Charlton Heston. (laughs) God's delivering, right? I can't even think of Moses without thinking of Charlton Heston. And some of you are going, who's Charlton Heston? All I know is the Prince of Egypt, which was a pale imitation to Charlton Heston. Now, 
through Moses, God delivers the nation of Israel who'd been in slavery and captivity in Egypt. He delivers them out of that captivity through 10 plagues. Now, the plagues, for those of you keeping score at home, were each designed to target a specific Egyptian deity. So these weren't random. So when you read about frogs, well, they worshipped frogs in Egypt. And so when Yahweh is provoking frogs to misbehave, he's demonstrating that there is no frog god. I mean, it's fascinating stuff. That's a different sermon for a different time. The tenth plague was the doozy, right? There's this angel who's going to be sent through all of Egypt. And to escape the wrath of that angel, the Israelites were called to slaughter a lamb, take its blood, and anoint the door frames of their homes. And this angel would pass over their home and and keep them safe. So the nation of Israel were commanded to reenact a festival they still celebrate today called Passover. Now notice why they're supposed to celebrate it every year. Chapter 13, verse 3. Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. There's a whole backstory on the fact they had to leave quickly. They couldn't take bread with yeast in it. So to this day, during Passover, you, you have unleavened bread. Today in the month of Abib, you are leaving. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the land he swore to his forefathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in this month. Jump down to verse 8. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead. Jump down to verse 14. In the days to come when your son asks you, what does this mean? Why are we getting rid of our yeast? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go. The Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. This is why I sacrificed to the Lord. It will be like a sign on your hand and on your forehead. So why were they to celebrate Passover? Was it because God was up there going, hey, I could really use some more lamb up here? No, why were they to do it? To remember. Doesn't that come shouting out? Hey, mom, dad, why, why do we do this thing? And when that happens, answer with the story for what this whole thing points to. It was God, our God is a God of props. He uses physical reminders to point to spiritual reality, right? So Noah, I'm not going to flood, do the flood thing anymore, so what's he do? Rainbow, right? That's the physical sign. Abraham slash Moses, what's the sign of the physical sign of that covenant? Circumcision. <laughs> to which I'd say, I'll take rainbow for 400, please. <laughs> right? Can I... Can, can we get like wildflowers or something like that? Circumcision, really? The women are going, hey, it's not so bad. And I'm going, you don't know. You don't know. I don't remember. That's very true. But Abraham would have. That was bad news when Abraham heard what the sign of the covenant was. He's going, hmm. Now, 
You're right, I don't remember. And ladies, you, how many of you have been through childbirth? Now, all of us have been through childbirth, but on the, on the giving side, <laughs> like how many? Okay, we got nothing on that, all right? Guys, we got nothing. We got nothing. Hallelujah. <laughs> um, what were we talking about? Ah, remember, God is a God of props. Now, so he gives us these physical reminders. Why? Because he knows we are a terribly forgetful people. Think about the span of our life, right? In the Bible, our life is called a mist, a vapor, a shadow, a fog. We're like grass that appears in the morning and withers by afternoon. So because, of our, because we're so finite and because we're so limited, what exactly occupies our 70 or 80 years? Those 70 and 80 years, right? And so God stands over all of this and invites his people to continually remember how good he is, how awesome he is, that we are his. Because there's this sense that sometimes spiritual reality is just too much for us to really accept. I mean, last week, if you were here, we were talking about the idea that God's love for his people originated outside of time before anything was created, before anybody had done anything, even before they were knit together, God loved them. And you kind of go, okay, that's cool, that's nice, and it doesn't sink in. In fact, we had people stand up just saying, I could... I really would like someone to pray for me for this because I don't really buy that. Imagine how differently you'd live if you did buy that. And so what we did is we gathered around people and just prayed for them. Now, why would we do that? Because sometimes you need to hear a human voice or feel a human hand or feel a, a, a flesh and blood community around you incarnating or enfleshing a theological truth. That's why the scripture talks about confessing sins to each other and not just to God, because there's something about another person looking at you and saying, on the basis of the sacrifice of Jesus, you're forgiven. There's something powerful about that in the Old Testament. How does God convince this tribe of people who he's redeemed that he's for them? Well, part of the reason is, part of the reason he does it is that there are these sacrifices and festivals where they're rehearsing over and over and over. I'm for you. I delivered you. I love you. I've chosen you. Da, 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 da. And you're thinking, maybe after you've offered the same sacrifice seven or eight or nine or a thousand times, it may just sink in. Because we are a people who forget what we're supposed to remember and we remember what we're, what we're supposed to forget. Go, if you would, to the book of First uh, Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So Jesus comes, and in a stroke of brilliance, during a Passover meal, he reframes the whole Passover meal, applies it to himself, and then commands that his new community celebrate regularly his death for the same reasons. Go, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I, this is Paul writing, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. As a forgetful people, how do you separate the kind of rituals that are empty and that God hates from the kind of rituals that are life-giving, life-affirming, and that God intended for us? Because there are people out there today who say, well, you've got to be baptized to be saved. You've got to celebrate communion in this specific way with this specific understanding, blah, 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 blah. And to which we would just simply say, you've missed the point of both symbols. You've missed the point in all of that stuff. The point is that these are outward reminders of inward realities. That's always been the case with the props God gives us. So a true ritual is separated from a false ritual. The false ritual we think is for God, that somehow we're buying God off, that somehow if I just get to church that day or take communion that day, that somehow he's okay. A true ritual is a ritual that says, no, 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 we celebrate this stuff because it is okay already. We're just reminding ourselves of the okayness, right? It's not like you're sitting here saying, okay, so if I do this, God, I buy you off for another six days. No, 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 no. The idea is we do this stuff to be reminded of what's already true, what he's already done. So true rituals are those that awake us up. False rituals are those that some, we somehow think, oh, God needs this. It's not true. True rituals are those that deal with the heart. False rituals are those that just deal with the ritual. So if I just sit and do the right thing and punch through my list, I'm covered. To which God says, well, I'm not interested in the ritual. I don't get anything from it. I'm interested in your heart because that's the point of the whole ritual, right? So take marriage. My sweetie bear, who is real and exists. We've been married 10 years. If she were here, you would, you would look at her and you'd say, why did she pick a guy like him? <laughs> Editing just happened right there. Doesn't happen often, but it just did. Now, suppose, hypothetically, I'm not a romantic guy. Okay, I think watching football together is a romantic thing to do. But let's say her feminine heart is starving for romance. One of my buddies says, you got to date your wife, son. I'm going to date my wife. All right? I'm going to date my wife. I decide. I, I, I do a Facebook poll. I talk to my friends. I'm going to date my wife. And we're going to, and I've told this story before, right? Um, so this may be familiar, but we're going to go to her favorite restaurant. We're going to dress up, have great conversation. I'm going to ask her questions and get to know her little feminine heart. And I'm going to have tables at the, or tables, flowers at the table. And then we're going to go for a walk on the beach. And it's such, such a hit. Her little heart is exploding with joy that when the next week comes and I'm confronted again with, what do I do? It worked so well last time that I take her to the same restaurant, have the, ask her the same questions, we wear the same clothes, order the same meal, and go for the same walk on the beach. Now, her feminine heart is a bit diminished, but it's still better than nothing. But suppose the next week I did the exact same thing, and the week following. And all the while, I'm thinking, look, I'm dating my wife. Women, am I dating my wife? Why? Heart's not in it. Just because I think I'm doing these things. See, that's empty ritual. 
God isn't interested in the ritual for its own sake. He commands these sacrifices, and at the same time, he says, these aren't for me, which raises the question, who are they for? And as it turns out, it's for us. Why do we celebrate communion? Because we're a people that forget what we're supposed to remember, and we remember what we're supposed to forget. Think about it. You, you hold the bread in communion. What do you remember? Well, you're supposed to remember that Jesus was real. He came in the flesh. He's sympathetic to us because he experienced life in this fallen world. He knew hunger. He knew thirst. He knew discouragement. He knew betrayal. He knew what it was like. So none of us can shake our fists at him and say, you don't know what it's like. Communion reminds us, yes, he does know. Every indignity, every injustice, every piece of oppression that this world has to offer, he suffered. So when we hold the bread, we're reminded that he draws close. When we drink the cup, what are we reminded? We're reminded that we're forgiven. I mean, how many of us come in remembering all the things we screw up? All the ways I fall short. Well, I'm supposed to be a godly this, and I was supposed to do this, and I didn't keep my word over here, and then, yep, I was chasing after this this whole week. And then there's so many ways we seek status, and so many ways we try to control each other, and so many ways we try to infiltrate power into our relationships and just demonstrate I'm a little better than you are, and I can get you to do what I want. We manipulate, we connive, we manage our image to each other. I mean, our whole week. And then you come into this place. And we remember, that's not who I am. Those things aren't held against me anymore. Don't have to live that way. I'm loved, I'm secure, I'm safe. We don't do them to become those things. We do them because we already are those things. Are you with me on this? It's like having an anniversary every year in your marriage, right? There's a wedding that you have, and I do, and then you just remember. Why do we place photographs around? To remember. We're forgetful people. And so the way God reminds us, whenever you gather, and you take the bread, and you take the cup, do this in remembrance of me. So we want to remember this morning. Now, for some of us, this whole series, if either you've been new here or sometime in the last couple of months, may have been a bit of a revelation, and the invitation of the whole thing has been, hey, you don't have to perform anymore. There's no contract for you to keep. You don't have to exhaust yourself on the treadmill of empty religion, because the gospel is the good news that Jesus has come, and through faith, just simple faith in him. He sets you free. He forgives. He restores. And yes, you'll change the way you talk and you'll change the way you live and he'll change the way you act and, and walk through this fallen world. But those changes come after the gift. They don't come before the gift. They don't come in order to receive the gift. So here's what we wanted to do. 
we just want to give you an opportunity, if you've never said yes to this Jesus, to do that. I mean, it would be totally hypocritical of us to talk about how great and how gracious and how loving and how good he is, and then just say, well, good luck. So here's the deal. Saying yes to this Jesus is not accepting a, a, a new religion. It's like entering into a marriage. There's a moment when you say, I do. Are those easy words to say, married people? Are those easy words to say? Do they change everything? No? They changed everything in my life. I don't know about you. My goodness. The toilet paper's got to come over the top, man. Before, it just was, had to be anywhere. I had to change it. So yes, I'm going to stop asking questions I want answers on. Just teasing. <laughs> Does it change everything? Yes. Easy words to say, but there's a marker where you stand before God and you say, I do. And then you begin a whole new journey. So close your eyes if you would. Because as we know, when does God do his best work? When our eyes are closed. That is a true statement. I don't get sick of that at all, anytime. All right. Uh, if you're here and you are outside the community of Jesus, um, the invitation for you is to come inside the community of Jesus. And the way that you do that is simply by receiving him. And it's, there's nothing magical about it, nothing crazy. We're not going to hitch up for money. There's nothing like that. It's a simple I do sort of thing. Because this Jesus, as we've been exploring, this Jesus comes and he declares over you that before you got your act together, before you got your doubts answered, before you got everything sorted out and taken care of, he comes to redeem and rescue. And you don't have to earn, and you don't have to perform, and you don't have to strive. All you do is receive, which is totally foreign to us. Nothing else works that way. And there are a bunch of us who've already received. So this next part isn't for you. But if you're here and you've never just had that kind of I do sort of moment with God, I want to give you the opportunity to do that. And it's really, really simple. If you want to pray after me, you just pray after me. You can pray out loud or in the stillness of your heart. But just pray this. God, I bring myself before you this morning and I pray that you would invade my life. I give up on trying to earn and prove myself to you. And I admit that I've blown it and I've sinned and I need you to rescue me. And so I say yes to Jesus this morning. And I give my life to him. And I pray that you would forgive me. And that your spirit would come and live in me. And that you would set me free. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariner's Church Mission Viejo Campus. 
For more information about Mariners, visit www.marinerschurch.org.